Hey everybody, welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. Uh, once again, we've got the three of us here on the podcast together, and I'm pretty excited to give a little special announcement here on the podcast. So we have a new baby in the Fakes family. That is true. A uh, little baby Marigold was born this weekend. To Carson uh, and Rachel Fakes. And as we're recording this, we actually just came from the hospital. Pretty fun. That's right. And usually I have to admit to you here that uh, babies don't interest me much, but this baby is better looking and sweeter and just yeah. seems better in every single way. It's just the perfect child. It's, it's absolutely funny how that works. Child. Yes, it's a mystery. <laughs> it is. And so I just want to be the first one on a podcast to uh, congratulate you on being a grandparent. Thank you very much. I'm working on the grandparent name as we speak. Yes. That's important. Keep everybody posted on that. Well, the three of us together again, and in light of a lot of things that have been going on in the evangelical world, most pointedly the Joshua Harris story, If, if you haven't followed that, Joshua Harris was famous 20 years ago for the book I Kiss Dating Goodbye. Purity culture is what that's been kind of known as now. He's the pastor of a big church in Maryland, leaves the church, renounces his book, and then about a week ago announces that he and his wife are separating, they're getting a divorce, and that he is no longer a Christian. For a lot of people, this is a pretty big shock, not just because they've read his book, but also because of the prominence that he's had in the evangelical world for close to 10, 15 years now. And I don't think that it comes as a surprise to that many people that um, a pastor might lose his faith, a pastor might leave the church, but... I think people are unaware sometimes of the pressure that's on pastors, especially celebrity pastors, and all the things that can go on under the surface, personally, doctrinally, spiritually, and then it all kind of comes to a very public climax. Mm -hmm. So what I wanted to talk to you guys about today is the pressures that are on pastors that maybe just going to a church you don't get to see, you don't understand. And and I want to especially talk about the path to maturity that you take in ministry that may look a little bit different from the outside than you experience it on the inside. So maybe let me just kick off and say, from a personal standpoint, what are the pressures that you feel as a pastor? So uh, Ben, why don't you start out and and let us into your world a little bit. Uh, So one area that is probably unique to ministers uh, is that most people in their professional life have kind of a bifurcation between here is my professional life and my work, and I find meaning in that in a certain way, and then I can step away from that and um, de-stress or uh, seek spiritual guidance and counsel In fact, my church might be one of the ways that I step out of my professional role to do something different uh, emotionally. Uh, That's going to be, I think, a lot of people experience something like that, for better or worse. 
the minister doesn't have that option, that his professional life work and the value and meaning it gives is inseverable from his church life. They are one and the same. Mm-hmm. There is no professional life, uh, spiritual life divide, or at least it's very um, obscure if it exists at all. The people that he might want to go seek guidance from, maybe you know the, the shepherds or leaders at his own church, are also his uh, employers in a sense. Um, it's there are professional ramifications from going to the leadership at your church and saying I'm having a crisis of faith. Um, you in the back of your mind know they could say we don't know if we want to minister with a crisis of faith right now, um, mm-hmm. and so that you almost have to go outside of your own congregation to find su- a support structure when you're trying to build a support structure for exactly that purpose that's not available to you. Uh, and so that is that is a unique challenge just from that standpoint, regardless of the actual work and task that you do, which themselves can be uh, a special kind of strain, that just the support mm-hmm. structure that you're building for other people is not something you can avail yourself of, at least not in the same way. There may be some really healthy churches out there where the the minister can just dive in and confess sin and concerns the same way any other minister can, or member can, but I would guess that's probably rare just because of the ramifications of that. Yeah, I would think that that's the case for sure. And if we just take that from a spiritual standpoint, how much of ministry for you all feels like you're building something or even you're setting a table for a feast for your people, nourishment, teaching, pastoral care, prayer, you know, all of that that you're offering, you're, you're setting this table, and then you never actually get to sit down and eat. Yeah, right. uh, Do you guys feel that? That's, that's a really good point. When I was a, a young boy, uh, my grandparents lived on a farm, and it, it was uh, when we would have the big dinners, I remember my grandmother would fix the meal, and she'd set it out for uh, for the workers and everybody else, but she wouldn't eat. She'd be serving, busy serving a dozen guys who were there for the harvest. Mm-hmm. And then she would clean up. Of course, we would leave, go back to the field. She would clean up. And I remember asking my grandmother, when do you eat? And she said, you know, I eat a little bit while I'm making it. And sure enough, I noticed mm-hmm. that as she was making it, and I find that that is very similar mm-hmm. When you lay out the feast, you really don't get to eat. And if you don't grab some morsels while you're preparing, if you will, then you can really go hungry. And uh, so it it is like fixing food for someone else, exactly like you said, and then not being able to eat it. Mm. Yeah, that's a great story. Uh, Um, Ben, do you feel that? Yeah, I was going to say, Terry, I don't know if you've experienced this, but... uh, that probably expense, ex, extends to your family as well, um, your your spouse or children um, would like to participate in the life of the church, but regardless of how much we say it, it's not the case. It is the case that they kind of have both a privileged and scrutinized position in the church, uh, and in many cases didn't really sign up for it. Um, my, my lovely wife married me back when I was planning to be a physicist professionally and uh, <laughs> ended up a minister's wife, you know, and 
what comes with that is the the expectations there. All those same things we just discussed for a person who didn't specifically choose that life. She didn't opt out either. Uh, and she does mm-hmm. a great job of it, but you get the point. Uh, children, you know, just come along for the ride in a sense. They didn't ask to be ministers' children, but there they are uh, with their own level of scrutiny. So that... Um, there are some things that uh, I think specifically of confession of sin as a something that's available for the the typical member of the church to participate in and get prayers and, and, and during spiritual struggles. Um, if a minister, his wife, or his kids do something like that, it looks more like a scandal than it does a place to rally around and support, um, mm-hmm. and that's that's just hard to overcome. Yeah, I agree. I remember before going into ministry, I read this quote from Tim Keller, and I may have shared it with you before, but he said, uh, being a pastor will either make you a better Christian or a worse Christian. And I thought that was silly when I first read it. And then when you get into ministry, you realize for the reasons that you guys have mentioned, it's fairly isolated. You know, it's not uh, like you can sit down with one of the sheep one day and as the shepherds say, you know, this this shepherding thing's just really... I'm struggling with it. You know, mm-hmm. every now and then I fantasize with just kind of letting the wolves through. You know, that's, <laughs> that's really not what the sheep want to hear from you. Yeah. And so you're right. It's it's fairly isolating and surprising as it was to me. There is a, a real inertia towards making you not as good a Christian yeah. mm-hmm. because you end up trying to do a lot of it on your own. So I think yeah. those are real challenges. Those are real challenges. And being sensitive to that both when you are the one who's in ministry and when you're the one who's in the congregation, I think is really important. Now, part of this is there are some really healthy safeguards to thinking about what level of vulnerability is helpful, what kinds of things you actually can engage in, because it's one thing to just rage against the system and say, well, I should be able to take advantage of all the stuff in the church. But in reality, there are certain things that as the pastor of the church, you really cannot take part in. Where would you guys begin to draw some contours around maybe this is over the line versus this is kind of a stigma that there's no reason I can't partake in this, but for some reason I've limited myself to to that. are there areas where you feel like some of it's self-imposed versus areas like this is just a line you you really can't cross? There's a thin there's a thin line uh, in preaching ministry, particularly between uh, preaching the nuance of a text that maybe you struggle with the meaning uh, versus preaching a specific doubt. Um, it's it's yeah. good for a minister to get up and acknowledge. This is difficult. This passage is a little strange. I'm I'm not entirely sure how this fits with my other perceptions of doctrine. I, I don't have a problem with a minister acknowledging that because there's an authenticity that comes with that that actually a lot of your members uh, are going to resonate with and say, oh, good, I thought it was just me that didn't get that. That's, that's actually helpful. <laughs> but when you are actually actively articulating the language of doubt instead of faith, that crosses over a line. Um, Mm -hmm. if you're in seminary or graduate school or any kind of program like that, there is a temptation to learn things faster than you can process them. And 
you you get information that you're excited about and just want to share and say, I learned this, but you don't know what to do with it yet. And you just kind of spew right. it out and your your ministry family, you know, the people out there, they weren't ready for that. Uh, and you weren't ready. Uh-huh. You were still chewing on it. Uh, so taking time and acknowledging, finding that fine line between acknowledging the difficulties of texts and preaching and concepts versus um, we don't want a feigned certitude, but we don't need an advocate for doubt either. Uh, The devil does that just fine without us. He doesn't need any help. Yeah, that's, that's really true. Even to push that one step further, one of the things that's really popular is the idea that if you get a pastor on stage who's willing to confess and share struggles, that that in some way allows them to identify with the congregation in a way that they couldn't if they seem to have all the answers. And there's a little give and take there in the sense that your pastor does need to be a human being. When you preach, you do need to be yourself. You don't need to be just the best version of yourself. Um, But at the same time, as you mentioned, Ben, the devil doesn't need any help. The flesh doesn't need any help letting us know what temptation looks like. We're all pretty familiar with what temptation looks like. Right. Where can sharing your weaknesses, sharing your temptations, even sharing former sins, what place does that have in teaching ministry in the pulpit? Well, I have a strong opinion about this. Uh, I think that as a leader, and if you're a shepherd, that is your role, whether you feel up to it sometimes or not. And I agree with Ben, there's no reason to pretend to be something that you're not. But if you're going to lead, you have to lead people somewhere. And it's not good enough to take them out in the middle of the desert and stop and say, this is as far in the book as I've read, guys. We're kind (laughs) of all struggling from here. I don't think it's fair to share your struggles with people and and just leave it in the middle. I think you need to tell them the rest of the story. I think it's okay to say, I am currently struggling with this, and I am confident that God is able to bring me through this or rescue me. And so I am praying more, and I have an accountability partner or whatever it may be. I think you just can't stop with the problem without saying, and I am confident in God's ability to overcome this. I don't know that you have to have the perfect, yeah, I used to struggle with that, and now everything's perfectly fine. But you got to have a a way forward. Mm Mm-hmm. The, the prophetic literature, while I don't want to make a perfect parallel between ministry and prophecy, uh, but the prophetic literature has a good example of where sometimes you do see the heart of the prophet and all of its strengths and weaknesses, but then sometimes he just disappears and there's a thus saith the Lord moment and it stops, mm-hmm. it stops being Jeremiah speaking to you. It's just God. And especially in preaching, you do have to have that capacity to kind of disappear and just let God say something. And when God's saying something, what he's saying can't be, and I'm struggling with this too, I'm a pretty bad person, because that's not true of God, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, when he's speaking, it, it is a little holier than thou, because he's holier than thou. I mean, I don't know how uh-huh. else to do that, but to sometimes let yourself just be um, invisible and let him say something, uh, even though you know you need to hear that too. Uh, somebody has to say it. 
Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if you guys have had this happen to you, but this happens to me quite a bit. But if you're doing a funeral for someone that you're close to, you know, you get up there and I've choked up a couple of times when I was doing a funeral. But if I weren't careful and if I didn't practice a little ahead of time, I could literally break down. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that would be very authentic and it would be very sincere. And everybody would say, wow, what a transparent person he is. And and that's true. But I wouldn't be serving that family in that moment. And what God called me to do in that moment was to serve that family. Right. And I'll tell you a prophetic story that sticks in my mind is the one about Ezekiel. And God came to him and he said, uh, your wife's going to die and I don't want you to mourn because there's a message. Mm-hmm. And so he said, and in the morning, my wife died and in the evening, I spoke to the people. And mm-hmm. they said, tell us what is the meaning of this? You're not mourning. And so he put aside his personal uh, grief even to carry out God's will. And I do think pastors are called to do that sometimes. I I think that's a burden they have to bear. I I love that you use the word transparent, and maybe we're using it, people use it two different ways, that when we say we want a minister to be transparent, what we usually mean is we want to see his true self, but the goal of preaching ministry and a lot of other kinds of ministry is to be transparent so that they see God on the other side of you. I'm not Mm, trying to reveal who I am. That might be fascinating to you. I want you to see God. If if some glimmer of me helps you to see God, fine, but that's not what I'm supposed to be portraying. That's a great distinction because I think it points out one of the inherent flaws in the whole celebrity pastor culture. And I want to be careful here because I don't think a lot of the people that we would consider celebrity pastors just up and decided that they wanted to be celebrities. Yeah. Right. So I'm not I'm not attributing motive to this, but the phenomenon of celebrity pastor leadership, Christian celebrityism, is that those people, their main mechanism of helping you is not presenting the things of God. It's presenting the things of God on the way to a picture of a specific instance of how God works, which would be their life. Yeah. Hmm. So whether they're doing this vocally or not, in the presence they have on social media or where they speak, that kind of stuff, you can quickly get to the point where you're not actually looking to God. You're looking to them And it just so happens that they're talking about God. Now, when you have Paul say in uh, 1 Corinthians 11 or 2 Corinthians 11, one of you guys knows, but um, he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. The telos there is still Christ. Right. So the pathway is still to Christ, and, and Paul might be walking beside you for a while or right in front of you for a while, but the pathway is the same. I get nervous when I feel like the pathway is the person. Mm-hmm. Right. And it just so happens to have visions of, of God that they're pointing out to the left and the right like a tour guide. That's, that's the distinction I think you have to make between true pastoral ministry, imitate me as I imitate Christ, and celebrityism, which focuses on the individual and they talk about God. 
I think that's true. I think about some of the the most popular self-help gurus of our time and and very interesting that you know the Tony Robbins, the Jordan Peterson, the Brené Browns are you know really lifted up because they have some really powerful things to say and I think it's easy to slip into the idea of uh, basically, I am an inspirational self-help person, and I just simply use biblical references for it. Mm-hmm. I think that's what I'm hearing you say. Yeah. Is uh, at that point, I'm pointing you toward oh, I don't know, maybe a better life if I'm altruistic, or a happier marriage, or more fame for me. I mean, my motives could be good; they could be bad. But as you said, the telos, the end point, is no longer really Christ. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's where you go back to Paul where he says, I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. Doesn't mean that Paul didn't talk about anything else. Doesn't mean that he didn't actually know anything else. It means that everything was harnessed to serve the goal of bringing them into face-to-face contact with God. And so maybe as a rule of thumb, what we would say is your vulnerabilities are are only helpful insofar as they actually help people to meet Jesus. Right. That's where you have some in the mainline denominations where you have this environment that is so bent on human frailty and sin, but it has no transformation. So I, I even think about the most extreme example would be like Nadia Boltz Weber's book, Shameless. So it's a book about how sexual sin, biblical teaching has been warped to actually make people feel worse about themselves as if the goal is to feel good about yourself. (laughs) But the really subversive part of it is that it only goes so far as admitting to sexual brokenness, even though I think it's completely wrong about sexual brokenness, but it goes so far as to admit what it is, it gives no hope of actual transformation. Right. I think as a pastor... Whatever you share, strengths, weaknesses, vulnerability, all of that, it, sh- it has to serve the purpose in the end of bringing you to a place where you can actually be transformed. And uh, if it doesn't do that, I don't think it's Christian ministry. That's a good point. Uh, I think about the analogy of painters don't sell paintings when they're halfway done. And I try not to share what God is doing in my life until God is finished with it. Now, do you guys think, uh, Ben, do you think there's a difference between what you share when you're doing pastoral counseling and what you share in the pulpit? Definitely. Um, while, you know, it's it's nice to be open and candid in the pulpit and there's a place for that, uh, it's definitely a different creature, what you're trying to accomplish for a mass audience with almost no context, right, that you may have people out there that know you really well and kind of get where you're coming from, and you may have people that are there for the first time on a Sunday uh, and have no idea who you are or what you're about. Um, I, I'll give a silly example. The other day I was preaching a sermon uh, a while back, and I made a comment that I I thought uh, Jesus was kind of telling a joke in a passage, that one of the stories he told, it was really funny to me, uh, people who know me know I kind of have a weird sense of humor anyway, and that that just kind of made sense with who I am to say something like that. There was mm-hmm. a guest there for the first time who took away from that. He thinks the Bible's a joke, right? <laughs> and so, like, without context, even a statement as kind of bland as that doesn't 
anchor into any kind of experience. And the same thing is true for personal stories. If you know me and my kids and whatever, then my personal stories about parenting might be endearing, or you just may come away thinking, wow, he's a terrible parent. Whereas in counseling, <laughs> uh, in counseling, you kind of do get to share a little more and say, actually, uh, I have experienced something very similar to this. And in, in the way of Paul, I could give you something that might help you follow Christ from my experience um, that may be helpful or at least commiserate with you that, yeah, I know it's tough. I'm not just going to give you some advice and say, go do it, that I can, uh, in, in the same way, well, not in the same way, but in a similar way that the, the New Testament celebrates that Christ is tempted in every point like as we are, and so as a sympathetic mediator and counselor to us, the minister has an opportunity to say, yeah, I'm, I am temptable, it turns out, and, uh, mm-hmm. and even beyond what Christ experienced, I, I can add failures to that, uh, that I needed Christ to overcome. Uh, so that is helpful in counseling, but without the context of a personal relationship, just broadcasting that through a microphone is just asking to be misunderstood. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think to put, a, to put a fine point on this portion of the discussion, vulnerability is good. Being a human being is good. Presenting your true self is good. As long as it's in the right trajectory, it's done in the right contexts, um, it's done in a way that you keep the focus in the right place, um, which can easily stray into cult of personalities, celebrityism, Mm -hmm. idolatry, uh, even resentment and hatred can come from that. Uh, On a from a personal level for you guys, one of the things you hear talked about a lot is burnout, pastoral burnout, just. Christian burnout, just getting tired of doing the things that you know are right, doing the things you know you need to do, spiritual disciplines, etc. What are the things that you guys have found that are the most helpful to avoid that kind of personal burnout or succumbing to the personal uh, individual pressures that come with being in ministry? I'm hoping Ben has an answer to this. Uh, go ahead, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> I have some bad answers for this. Um, um, all the things counselors tell you not to do, I probably do at some point. Uh, I, I, I can eat my feelings. I'm always hungry on a Sunday night where I think, well, that was rough. I would really like a Sunday. Uh, that's, mm-hmm. that's probably not a good solution. There's a reason a lot of ministers have weight issues. Uh, <laughs> that's, yeah. that's probably as much psychological as anything else. Um, yeah, high stress and low free time. Uh, I mean, that's a reality. Yep. Um, I, I like to kind of de-stress through triviality. Uh, I like video games, um, Mm -hmm. like something that I can gauge in that has absolutely no consequence whatsoever is what I'm looking for. Uh, Because anything with consequence is just back into the grind again, in a sense. So uh, an hour on a weekend doing something that has zero consequence for anyone anywhere is pretty enjoyable for me. Um, Yeah. What would be more helpful if I did more of it is more physical exertion. Uh, you, you want something that's the opposite of where your stress is. So if you're, uh-huh. if you're a day laborer and you work all day, you want to relax by reading a book. If you read books and talk to people all day, maybe go build something, uh, whether that's yeah. exercise or a, a craft of handwork, gardening, but just finding something that allows you to, to move your body, um, 
in a holistic way, kind of responding to stress in that way is very helpful for ministers. I don't do nearly as much as that as I should, um, but but it, it I know when I've done it, I say, well, that was good. I should do that more, and then a month later, I'll think about it again. <laughs> but that's that's helpful. Mm-hmm. That that's a great point, and I would I would really agree with the physical exercise. It's hard to make yourself do it, but it's a great stress reliever. My challenge is, uh, and something that I'm working on is a little bit different. I'm an introvert, mm-hmm. and so when I'm working with people, working in pastoral ministry, it takes energy, which is fine, yep. to do that. And then at some point, I run out of energy, and so I begin to withdraw into certain activities to recharge it. Maybe that's reading, maybe that's uh, bicycling or something, and I think those are good ideas. But what I found happening to me is I couldn't get enough free time. Mm-hmm. I couldn't get enough recharging time to to uh, replenish what was being pulled out. I was uh, running a little bit of a deficit mm-hmm. each week. Yes. And so instead of trying to have so more... So you, you extended the deficit yeah. ceiling for the that's, next three years. I just, that that's you, right. You just voted to I learned I learned yeah. how to do deficit spending. That's exactly yeah. right. <laughs> and I didn't even have to change parties to do it. That's right. Because everybody does it. You know, one of the things I've been working on is obviously you do need to have that time away. I mean, everything you're saying is right. But one of the things I personally, this may only be true for me, is that expend less energy while I'm doing ministry. And what I mean by that is just be more myself Mm. as opposed to trying to give everybody what they expect and they need is allow myself to be imperfect in certain situations. And, And I found that instead of you know, putting out a, you know 200 volts in every interchange. Maybe I just put out the 120 and, and mm-hmm. let God make up the rest. And so I, that may be very personal for me, but I tend to want to give everybody the very best in every moment. Yeah. And I think I'm not leaving enough room for the Holy Spirit. Yeah, that's, that's a, a really good point for people in ministry is it's okay to not have what people want from you. It's okay to not be able to provide uh, what you think needs to be provided in that situation. And that's not that's not to give rise to laziness. Right. Right. To say, you know what, you should never care about what people think or what they need. Because probably if you're in this situation where you need to hear this, that's not where you're going to go wrong. Um, you know, lazy people don't last very long in ministry. Mm-hmm. Lazy people also don't get to the point where they feel like maybe I don't have what everybody needs. Mm-hmm. They, that, that question doesn't get asked. <laughs> yeah. But I do think it's important to say people come and expect things from you all day, every day. There's right. really no time where you're completely off. And being able to admit, I probably don't have what they need. And then figuring out what to do in light of that. Right. P- still putting forth effort, putting forth the right effort, depending on the Holy Spirit to provide in the situation is a really insightful thing to recognize about yourself. But it's also a general statement I think about ministry is right. we pretend like pastors are supermen. We all know inside that they're not, uh, but then we get a little bit confused when they don't act like supermen. That's a lot of pressure. Um, and, and hard to stand up under. To pivot here back to the Joshua Harris situation, 
what I think is interesting about how this unraveled with him is when he puts out the second Instagram post about not being a Christian. I, I want to say, first and foremost, and I've seen a couple people point this out, the best thing about that was the integrity that it took for him not to continue under the false guise of being a Christian Agreed. when he knew that he wasn't. So you have a lot of people who are probably in ministry who believe less than what Joshua Harris does <laughs> who are afraid to admit, Ouch. I'm not really a Christian I'm re- uh, or I'm not in the place where I need to be in ministry. Cool. You know, he's saying, <laughs> knowing what I do about Christianity, I don't think I'm a Christian. I do admire that integrity. I actually think that a lot less damage would be done in the church if more people had that level of of presence and of self-awareness. Cole, you you know uh, Eugene Peterson's book, Working the Angles? He makes essentially Mm -hmm. that statement, that there is no job in the world easier to fake than being a minister. Like, it, it, mm. if you tried to fake being a plumber or a butcher, your incompetence <laughs> would immediately be obvious that you have no idea yeah. what you're doing. But ministry, just exuding some confidence and certitude, can get you by like 90% of your job if you want it to. You'll be doing a bad right. job of it, but no one will know. And the amount of people that you injure in the process yes. uh, that you don't immediately see is a pretty scary mm-hmm. reality. We we had a guy come in, a, a pastor has been a pastor for a long time, and talked to some of our pastoral staff in Kansas City. And one of the things that he said absolutely changed his ministry forever was the first moment he realized, he said he's probably 10 years into ministry, the first moment he realized that he was capable of doing significant harm to people, mm. even in moments where he thought he was doing a good job, uh-huh. changed his ministry forever. And so, the you know, you have a fake it till you make it mindset or I'm only human or mm-hmm. whatever rationality we use for it. You're exactly right, Ben. Mm-hmm. It's easy to fake things, but you can do a lot of damage by doing that in the long run. That's kind of an uncomfortable point to admit, but that's the nature of the work. Yes. So in Joshua Harris's case, he says that his faith was deconstructed. He doesn't believe the things that he did anymore. He's not in the same place. And this is a pretty popular deconversion story. I think of Bart Ehrman's story. Hmm. I think in a lot of ways of Rob Bell. Mm -hmm. Uh, All these people have something in common. They come from a very fundamentalist background. They only know one way of being a Christian, very strict, moralistic in some ways. And once they realize the limits of that, they don't just jettison that model. They actually leave the faith entirely. You know, he said in his his comment, there may be other ways to know Christ to be a Christian, but I'm not aware of those ways. He only knows the way that he that he knows, and, and what he knows right now is he wants to reject that. That was the most interesting comment in that post to me, was maybe somebody else can be a Christian this way, I can't. I, I just thought that was very an interesting admission um, in some sense, but, but then to do nothing with it, you know, that... 
Um, yeah. I, maybe I should think about what other ways people are Christian. I, I don't know what to do with that comment from him, but I thought it was very interesting. It was. Yeah, I've thought about that a lot since I read that post. How do you grow up in your doctrine and your doubts and your understanding while you're in ministry? I think on the one hand, people don't expect you to think the same things for 30 years, 40 years, the life of your ministry career. But at the same time, are there good and bad ways to grow in your understanding, to mature in your thinking and in your faith? And is, is ministry a safe place to do that? Dad, what do you think about that? Well, a uh, complicated topic. Let me take one slice at it. And that is, first of all, we tend to think that maturing in your doctrine means to become more liberal. Because when you hear deconversion stories, or you hear something that should be a deconversion story, but it's, it's not, and that is, for example, like in his case, uh, I no longer believe marriage is between one man and one woman. And I think that God blesses homosexual unions. I believe that's something that he specifically referred to Mm -hmm. Joshua Harris. So I'm not going to criticize Joshua Harris, but what I want to say is we tend to think of that as progressing your doctrine. Well, I don't agree with that. I think there are many, many more people progressing in their doctrine by reaffirming the fundamental truths of the Scripture. But the ones you hear about are these. So that's the sense that uh, you're, you're growing in your faith or you're maturing in your faith and your doctrine and that always has a liberal connotation to it, and I, I don't agree with that. But back to the main point, should one be free to mature in your doctrine? I think so. I think everyone needs to continue to learn. Where I think you go wrong is when you forfeit some of the foundational undergirding. For example, the problem with Joshua Harris isn't that one day he woke up and said, you know, I have a lot of gay friends, and I think uh, you know, same-sex marriage is is okay, and I don't understand why the Bible doesn't uh, be okay with this, so I guess I can't be a Christian anymore. He, that happened long before that with a certain foundational issue about the truth of Scripture, the goodness of God. Mm-hmm. There are bigger issues, and I think one of the things that causes that to go the wrong way is what the Scripture says, evil companions corrupt good morals. Mm-hmm. Don't kid yourself. And I really think that who we hang around with the steady diet of things we put into our head can erode the foundation. So I may be mistaken about it, but I see this as more of a foundation problem. Mm-hmm. If it's not a foundation problem and your doctrine grows, perhaps you've changed your opinion about infant baptism. Perhaps you've changed your opinion about uh, the when the uh, tribulation is going to happen. Those are not foundational issues, but the authority of the Scriptures the goodness of God, the nature of humanity, those are foundational issues. And and I see in this particular case, that drift probably happened far before any specific issue came up. I don't know. What do you think, Cole? Yeah, I agree. On the the first half of that, um, you know, it sounds pretty monolithic to say that no um, doctrinal departure exists apart from sin mm-hmm. issues. But I have never actually experienced something where those two were not linked. Yeah, uh, And I think biblically we could make that case that what you do in a lot of ways affects what you believe. So it may not have started out as an intellectual doubt 
not trusting foundations of scripture and errancy or something like that. It may have started with wanting to do what you want to do, hiding your sin, indulging it, getting to a place where that actually changes what you believe. I think that's likely what happens in most cases where pastors present intellectual doubt. That's been my experience. I'm not willing to say that that's how it always happens, but but I think that that's a likely explanation for things that do happen. Pastors present in burnout or they present with intellectual doubt. You find out later that there's a whole litany of moral issues and moral failure that were lurking behind the scenes. I think that's more common than we think. And one of the failures, just so you don't think of, uh, we're trying to accuse people of you know certain carnal sins, I think one of the real temptations, and this is why I pray a lot for high-profile pastors, is pride. You know, it's, it's really easy. I'll tell you a story briefly about myself. When I was a young man, I worked in information systems, and I worked, uh, I was a basically a troubleshooter, a problem solver, and we had millions of dollars worth of computers, and I worked on the weekends because I was uh, still in grad school. So when people would have a problem and it wasn't working right, they'd bring me this big sheet of paper and they'd say, they'd come to the door of my office and they'd stop there and they'd bow because that's what I told them they had to do. And they'd say, please, would you fix this problem? We can't print bills. The company's losing a million dollars an hour. And so it was my job, uh, along with some other guys, you know, to sit down and figure out what's going wrong in this software, fix it, get this thing running again. Well, I love the job, but over time, I began to think pretty highly of myself because they needed me. They came to me. They relied on me. Mm. And, you know, I was kind of the hot shot. And I remember I finally got so full of myself that my boss wrote me a letter because uh, I worked on Saturday. He didn't come in and chew me out on his own. He wrote me a letter. It's the best letter I've ever gotten, and it's the best chewing out I've ever gotten. It was thorough without being mean. Uh-huh. It was to the point without being nasty. I read it. And it, I had two, two reactions. One was, oh, that really hurts. And number two was pure admiration for the art of this chewing out. Yeah. And he really <laughs> did me a favor by cutting me back down to size. And I, I had realized I had turned into a self-centered kind of a jerk through my pride. Now, I'm not saying this is what happens to celebrity pastors, but I do think if you don't have someone that can come in and and help you stay grounded. Mm-hmm. Pride is a, is one of Satan's most you know favorite tools, and I wonder if that pride can't lead us to the point where we begin to drift. I think everybody needs somebody in their life who loves you, but is not impressed with you. Yes, you you need somebody who sees you for who you are. They're not threatened by you. They don't need anything from you. They're not impressed with you, but they love you and they're friends with you, and they care about you. I think that's necessary in, in ministry. When we call them wives. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I was, I was going to say, supportive, supportive but unimpressed is the very model of a minister's wife. Uh, that yes, she never, very true, and she, rightfully so. She never joins the cult, uh, <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah. That's, yeah. So I don't want to say here that every pastor that fails... Uh, or presents doubts is is enthralled in moral failure, but that that is a common manifestation of of pastoral failure. But what about when it really is doubts? Or Mm -hmm. what what about when you have believed something for 10 years, you've taught on it, you've preached it. We've probably all done this. You've done a series where you taught on it, 
and now you believe something slightly different about that. As long as it's not a gospel issue, how have you guys gone about doing that? Have you experienced that uh, in school, study, just maturity over time? If so, what did you do? Well, for me, and and I'd love to hear Ben's answer to this too. First of all, I don't have a new opinion. I have a different understanding of Scripture. And I know that sounds like a ticky-dot difference, but to me, uh, I think I hear a lot of people whose opinions have changed because of experiences in their life. If I change an opinion, I want it to be because I believe the Scripture. I have misunderstood the Scripture because that's the source of truth. Not experiences in my life, not people that I know, not tragedies that I experience. And it may be that I come to a different understanding of Scripture, sincerely so. And that manifests itself in two ways. One, I'm willing to discuss that uh, because we can appeal to a common authority. Mm -hmm. And it may be that I can... uh, be corrected or convinced. So first of all, it has to be convinced. And I've said many times, if I thought the scripture taught and fill in the blank with some controversial topic, I would teach that mm-hmm. uh, because I understood it. I would hopefully be open to learning more if I were wrong. But you do change your opinion. I'll tell you one that I've changed my thinking on over time as I've studied more, not as a result of experience, is election. And I have come to have a stronger understanding, a stronger view of God's election than I have in the past. It isn't been so different that it affects the gospel or, oh gosh, Jesus isn't Lord anymore or Jesus' commands don't apply to me anymore. But I do teach it a little differently because I believe that this understanding magnifies God even more. Mm-hmm. Uh, ben, I don't know. What's been your experience with that? Uh, I'm definitely resonating with with what you're saying there. I think uh, the struggles that a lot of ministers have um, probably, as as you've said before, comes from a little bit of pride and uh, an illusion of expert knowledge that we didn't actually have in the first place, uh, Mm -hmm. that there is uh, something persuasive about hearing your own voice behind a podium that you... You really think you know what you're talking about. <laughs> and um, turns out uh, saying something loudly doesn't necessarily make it true. So you yeah. you trust the printed page of Bible, but you write your own notes in pencil. And you, you have to have a willingness to go back and learn and grow and have a curious mind uh, to understand that we've been hashing out the details of Christianity and of human life for few thousand years now, and uh, there's been a lot said, and I'm a little tiny, tiny part of that, and need to be humble about the rest of it is very important. Um, I think that's essential. Um, Another area where I think for ministers in particular, but just Christians in general, struggle about the idea of changing your mind, uh, I think you guys have hit on it with the idea of this isn't a gospel issue. What we mean by that is um, too often we throw every topic and doctrine into the essential category uh, because they are in some way connected. I mean, I assume anything you believe as a Christian is in some way connected to Jesus or it wouldn't be a Christian belief, but that doesn't mean that everything you believe has the same essential value as the statement that Christ is Lord, that he died and was raised and so forth. 
but we have a tendency to throw everything into that category. Um, I want to say, is it uh, Moeller that's done the work on uh, kind of a triage approach to mm-hmm. Christian doctrine? And I think that's a fantastic metaphor that uh, in the emergency room, there you have a guy bleeding out and a guy with a stubbed toe. You, you have to be able to distinguish. It's not that either is unimportant, but one right. is more important. And the same is mm-hmm. going to have to be true with Christian doctrine, that there is some, you would have to do a lot more work to change my mind about the resurrection than you would to change my mind about the date of the authorship of Galatians. I can't hold those with equal <laughs> conviction, you know, and, and but as Christians we do because we don't want to think anything that God says is unimportant. And that's, that's the, mm-hmm. that's the trick. Nothing that God says is unimportant. Some things are more important. And Jesus acknowledges that when, when they ask him, what's the most important commandment? He could have said, everything God said is equally important. But instead he said, actually, I can rank the first two. Paul does the first thing, uh, same thing in first Corinthians 15 he says, what I delivered to you was of first importance, and then sketches the doctrine of the resurrection. Right. It, it doesn't mean that the virgin birth is unimportant. I, I think that's pretty important. But the resurrection, that's step one. That, that death, burial, yeah. and resurrection, if we don't get past there, we don't get to you know collect $200 when we pass go. That's that's the beginning, right? And uh, yeah. that, mm-hmm. So I think the, the failure to put Every or the, the failure in putting everything in the same category is a lot of the reasons why um, a changing of mind feels like a, an emotional betrayal of something because we falsely put everything into the same category. Mm-hmm. I think that's really well said. Um, if you guys were to give a, a, a final word, maybe on the pressures of the pastor, ways to mature well, to grow well, uh, and I'll give mine right off the bat here and let you guys finish on on the topic of doctrinal maturity humility i think is a really important quality Mm -hmm. and i would go ahead and just say don't teach anything dogmatically so we're talking non-gospel issues here when you're in seminary or (laughs) a year to two years out of seminary just go ahead stick to the gospel stuff teach everything else as an opinion and that will serve you pretty well when you're in that formative phase. We probably all made s- yep. similar mistakes yep. uh, from that kind of thing. That is very true. Uh, that's a good point. And I would say I've been a long time from from formal school, but just as you learn something new from one author, that's a, that's, that's a good point. Let it sit. Let it season. I say this a lot, and I know it sounds like I'm uh, being glib, but I'm not, is you know, we'll read a passage and I'll say, I want you to think about that for about 10 years and we'll talk about it again. And mm-hmm. I am old enough and been reading the Bible long enough that I understand that you got to let some things soak for a while because the Spirit wants to do some work with you. So I, I agree with you about not being dogmatic. I, I would say, you know, one of the things is be careful what you put in your head. And I want to sketch out the two extremes. One is reading a lot of, in my case, uh, really liberal or contrarian views of the Scripture is useful to me to read that. Mm -hmm. But if that's all I put in my head, it's eventually going to affect me, and I need a balance. On the converse, 
reading only people who see the scriptures the way I do makes an echo chamber and I don't grow. Yes. And so I would agree with Tim Keller. He says, you know, if you read one book, you're going to be like that pastor. You read a lot of books and you become yourself. And so I like to to read widely, but be very careful. Don't kid yourself. What you put in your head makes a difference. And then secondly, don't ever get away from reading the Bible. I do think as we, as pastors, get all guy, yeah, well, I've read Galatians 22 times, so maybe I'll read a book about Galatians. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, always reading the Bible more than you're reading books about the Bible. That's good. And I'll, I'll add, um, when you've done all that, maintain a sentiment of grace towards people with whom you disagree. Um, I've, I've known far too many ministers that develop, uh, so they study the Bible, they study books about the Bible, they are professional Bible students, in a sense, and then have zero patience for the average member who hasn't spent that kind of time in Scripture, who has the same view they had 30 minutes ago, but suddenly that person's an idiot. You know, you're naive, and you're what's wrong with the church. And it, it starts to sound a bit like teenage angst rather than righteous indignation. Uh, mm-hmm. Instead, you, you say, okay, that's that's exactly who I was before I wasn't. Um, so <laughs> maybe cut them some slack. You know, I, I think we've got to have yeah, that. I think so, too. To yeah. finish on a personal note, I would say when, it's, when it comes to spiritual and, and personal pressures, everybody needs to find somebody. Usually it's going to be a person who's not on your church staff. Um, maybe it's a elder, if you're an elder, maybe it's somebody that doesn't go to your church that can really know you, like we talked about. Somebody, uh, obviously your wife, and in addition to that, somebody who's unimpressed with you, but loves you, cares about you, believes the same things you believe, and is willing to ask you difficult questions, do the checkup kind of things that are necessary, and uh, in some cases, pull you back from whatever ledge you might be peering over. Mm -hmm. Um, All of us need a friend like that, and all of us need people like that in ministry. Yes. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening. And we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.